author, Mr. Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Good evening. Always nice to be here with you. Good. Pleasure to speak to you. You usually uh, tell us what's new in uh, JFK research in the LA area, and then uh, your website, and then we take letters, and this week there was some conferences, so I'm sure we'll give us an overview on that, that you went to a couple of them, I think. No, no. I only went to one. Oh, well, I thought you were speaking at a bookstore. In Ohio. Oh no no that's that that wasn't a conference that was a speech that I made in Cincinnati. Cincinnati, okay. right? Okay. Well, yeah. tell us how did that go? Okay. All right. This is what I did. I had two speeches to give. One in Cincinnati at the Mercantile Library, which is downtown, and then Matt Crumpton, who arranged that speech for me, he was there because he lives in Columbus, and then he drove me to Pittsburgh for the WEC conference. And I thought they both went pretty well. And in Cincinnati, I did a more simple kind of um, speech, basically concentrating on the Tippett case and the JFK case, because I didn't know how to pitch that. I didn't know how experienced these people were going to be. By the way, I have to tell you, though, one guy showed up at that conference at the Cincinnati thing. I couldn't believe it. He had bought every book I ever wrote. Do you believe that? Every single book I wrote from 1993, he had. And so I autographed all of them for him. And uh, I got to see my sister and my two, my niece, nephew and niece, because they were in the area. They live in Cincinnati. And that was a nice, appreciative audience. Matt Crumpton introduced me. Okay, then he asked me some questions after. And I, I thought it went off very well. Now, before I get to the Pittsburgh conference... I mean, I, I think maybe you should ask Paul Blow about the JFK Lancer conference because he, he went to that one. I, I, I did not go. All right. But let me get to some letters because I, I hate to get far behind on this. We want to be as nice to our, our listeners as possible. But let me make a little ad first. OK, I have a book of JFK Revisited that's left over from my uh, two my two talks. And I will gladly send in a money order, a check, or if you want to send cash, fine. All right, uh, thirty dollars, and I and send me in a note how you want it inscribed to you. 
okay? And then I will be glad to go ahead and and send it and, and mail it to you, all right? Um, and I'll go ahead and then I'll be glad also if you're too late, I'll just return the uh, I'll just return the payment. But I have one book left. Okay, now let's get to some letters. This is from Jerry Fasia. Jerry used to be a history professor, and he then I think it was in the San Francisco area, and then he went he left academia, and I think he's an artist living in Italy right now. Okay, all right. Number one, below was a quote by John Newman posted in Facebook a couple of years ago. It's quite astonishing, and if true, any thoughts. For several months, the Joint Chiefs withheld from JFK what they knew about the coming Russian nuclear missile deployments in Cuba to make sure he had no time to stop the deployments until they were in place, nearly ready to fire. They wanted Kennedy to be backed up against the wall with no option other than to attack Cuba while carrying out a massive surprise nuclear strike to destroy the USSR and China. That's true. And John will back it up in his upcoming book, Armageddon. But he started telling me about this quite a while ago. All right. But it, 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 that is an accurate statement. The assassination planning in Chicago was broken up before Kennedy's arrival and his trip was canceled. But did Kennedy know that a planned assassination plan attempt had been foiled? In other words, did he go to Dallas knowing this? And if he and if the people close to him did know, you think that they would have canceled the opening air, open air limo in Dallas and would have taken greater security precautions there as well. I'm thinking of his inner circle here and not so much his security detail, which probably would have been not have been trusted anyway. All right. I think Kennedy did know about the general outline that there had been a plot to assassinate him in Chicago. I don't think he knew the details. I think the Secret Service deliberately held that top secret because it would have been kind of embarrassing. And I don't even think that the uh, I don't even think the White House detail knew about it. And in fact, they destroyed those records. The Secret Service destroyed those records knowing that the ARB wanted them in advance. Now, why do I think there's a strong possibility Kennedy knew about it? Because in the trip to Tampa, that had the utmost security of almost any, of any motorcade that Kennedy rode in. And after that trip was completed, Kennedy called in every guy from the police department to the FBI to the Secret Service, to the, I think, the 11th floor of the Floridian Hotel and personally congratulated him. So that's what makes me think that he probably knew the general outlines that there was a plot in Chicago. Question number three, were Bill or McGeorge Bundy, in effect, moles for the CIA, passing along Kennedy's private thoughts and conversations? You know, I don't know how to answer that. I know that there are some people who tend to think that, like David Talbot, I think, thinks that, okay? But I'm not really so sure about that. I hate to say this, but I'm sitting on the fence about McGeorge Bundy. Bill Bundy wasn't that high up in the hierarchy at that time. He was promoted later by Johnson. But McGeorge Bundy is a very important figure in the Kennedy administration. And 
I tend to think that he was loyal to Kennedy. If I had to, if he had to force me off the fence, I would go in 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 that direction. Okay. Well, what do you make of isn't it? Oh, 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 Len is going to disagree with me. Yeah. <laughs> you lying bastard. <laughs> no, I was going to say was was the writing of the NSAM 273, the draft that seems to reverse. Isn't that signed by McGeorge Bundy? I mean, like for yeah, but, instance, but, but it but it but it was altered by LBJ. Okay. The, yeah, the rock- that draft signed by McGeorge Bundy on. Uh, on yeah, but so he, but Johnson altered it. Yeah, but the draft is quite damning as it is. is what I'm and saying. We don't know what we don't know what JFK would have done with the draft. Okay, we don't know that. We do know what Johnson did. Okay. Well, I if I was to get a guess, I I'd say Kennedy would be totally surprised. Like, what is this? This is not what 263 was. What do you mean we're going to help them to win? You know things. Anyway, that's my opinion. That I think that. Uh, you know, guys like George Bundy and um, Maxwell Taylor. Maxwell, I mean, these guys mm-hmm. seem to have two jackets on. You know, they're, they're, you think they're loyal to Kennedy, and yet, and I'll throw in there um, Bob McNamara, Robert McNamara. You know, you, I mean, how is it that these guys are JFK people, and then, then, then they're go ahead with Lyndon Johnson and the Department of Defense? But they all, they all left. Well, they didn't they leave all right left. away. They, one by one, they all left. No, I okay, okay. I well, the guy's question was, do you think that in the intelligence community, if you, I mean, you know, one thing I was surprised at this week or two weeks, that there was quite a few shows and interviews out there that really were sticking it to the CIA and the intelligence community and the Department of Defense for being responsible for Kennedy's murder. And yeah, I, you know, I was actually surprised by that myself. You know, they actually had me on Fox. On Fox and Friends, okay. I can't recall the day it was, but you can find it on YouTube. Okay, it's on. The, it's in that week, sure. Yeah. And and they they were actually pretty fair to me. You know, they, and they fair is good enough these push. days. I mean, you don't. You know, between you mentioned David Talbot and John Newman, and there's people that have got views, and I wouldn't call them conflicting. Just different views. We're all kind of reaching for something, but they're not parroting Gary Mack anymore. And well, that that seems to be the case now. I don't know. Did you see the uh, what the doctor saw on Paramount Plus yet? No, I haven't. It wasn't available in Canada. Oh, it wasn't. Quite a few emails that the the Paramount Plus is not available. I'll have oh, to check that's, again. That, that, that's too bad because I saw that film. Yeah. When me and Oliver were doing JFK Revisited, Bob Tannenbaum showed me that film because he's a speaking head in it. Okay. okay. And. I thought it was pretty good. Now, what they've done in the new version is they've added two people, Doug Horn and Matt Crumpton, the guy who arranged that Cincinnati speech for me. He has a website called Solving JFK, which is a pretty good website. And so, uh, by the way, Matt was also on George Galloway's show this week, okay, a pretty big talk show from, from England. Right, yeah. I should add. So that film is an interesting film and i know a little bit about the background he had been trying to sell that film for a very long time and he had an option with cbs the producer of the show and he had an option with cbs then leslie moonvies got fired and the option was canceled so now with big streaming uh, market he was able to sell it to paramount plus and by the way 
if you can believe it, Paramount Plus is also showing JFK Revisited because evidently Showtime and Paramount Plus merged. So on that one network, you can get two of the best documentaries on the Kennedy case that have recently been made. Okay. Very, very interesting, I think. All right. So you mentioned an interview on on George Galloway and I yeah, saw Matt Oliver Thompson. Stone on uh, Bill Maher's show. Yeah, um, he did 2 hours with him. Yeah. And it was uh <laughs> it was very interesting because it made me like Oliver even more, you know. Bill kind of was it seemed like he'd been sitting around and you know drinking you know for lack of better you know he was just sometimes people have casual talk but this was too casual and a couple of times Oliver said you know come on we're we're having a serious discussion quit joking <laughs> right into that effect and uh, i urge everyone to watch it because they talked about a multitude of things but it was a a good long form interview for Oliver to talk about several items just what we were getting back to was that this week there was a couple i think i saw Jeffrey Sachs speak on the JFK assassination and Ray McGovern as well. Yeah, and, the Ray McGovern thing was about a half an hour. And okay. it's just they all went into detail about this is really bad and it mm-hmm. was uh, highly organized by by people, f- you know, from the Department of Defense several times they named Alan Dulles and nobody spoke about Lee Oswald. So even though the, the original question was just was, what do you think about Bill Bundy and McGeorge Bundy and that? You know, if a gang of people in there just said one day, this guy's got to go, it's not out of reach, I think, to, to say, well, who would be in that group that we're talking like that? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. All right. So, I'm again, this is a point that I was talking about today on the forum. I said, you know, the 60th wasn't anything like the 50th. The 50th, we literally got blown out of the box, but the 60th did not turn out like that. I think another reason is that a lot of the guys like Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw are not there anymore. And I think that might have helped. <laughs> and John right. McAdams. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and secondly, the other thing is, I think Landis got the jump on this. He got everybody off sides. Putting them on the defensive, and maybe they thought, look, it's best that we just don't say anything about this. Yeah. So this this was a, a much more even field, a much more evenly paved field this time, this time around. They didn't win, and I think it's due to some of these reasons I'm talking about. Now, also, I'm sure you're aware of Libby Andros and her film. Uh, no, I'm not. Lynn, my God, I miss you for a week, and you – all right. Four Died Trying. She has put together a multi-part series on all four assassinations of the 60s. It's sort of like the book me and Lisa Peace co-edited on JFK, Malcolm, King, and RFK. Well, this is about all four of those cases. All right. That premiered, I think that one is on Apple. Streaming is such an amazing development in telecommunications, okay? And I think that's the reason that some of these shows are getting on. But that one, I believe, is on Apple. And the, for the she was in Pittsburgh. I'll talk about this later when we talk about the WEC conference. But that film actually looks pretty decent to me. I mean, there's a few people I wouldn't have put on. But overall, I think that has Oliver in it. It has Bobby Kennedy Jr. in it. 
Kathleen Townsend Kennedy uh, is in it. Okay, there's uh, Andrew Young is in it. Jesse Jackson is in it. Okay, Malcolm X, his daughter is in it. Okay, uh, members of the King family are also in it. All right, so uh, so that's something to look out for also. Oh, let me get back. I didn't put for, for about my book. The address to send it to is P.O. Box 4354, Burbank, California, 91503. Okay, so that takes care of the commercial. Now let's get to the next question. Hello, I'm Eric Burke from Witness, Northwest England, UK. Boy, isn't this great when we get these overseas people? You know, this shows you the reach of... Uh, Black Op Radio. Yeah. Yeah. As, now, this was dated November the 13th. As we approach November 22nd, I find it hard to believe we've heard nothing from the UK media so far acknowledging the 60th anniversary or any scheduled programs relating to it. That You know, I, I find that really hard to believe. There wasn't one. You know, I wonder what, uh, what was available on the Internet. But for the BBC to black out the whole thing, I mean... That's really something. Therefore, thank you for de dedicating decades to find the truth. Have you or Oliver had a response from any U.S. media, the establishment or other body regarding your book or the documentaries JFK Revisited and Destiny Betrayed? Yeah, we, we got a negative response, especially from the Washington Post and from Graydon Carter's airmail. Okay. Uh, also from Tim Weiner. And the Rolling Stone. And I tried to reply to all of these. Oliver replied to uh, Tim Weiner. But from the second tier, Oliver did a lot of media on the second tier, the alternative press, whatever you want to call it. And I did some. And that is why I think they tried to see. I thought that they would just ignore us. OK, but we got on so much alternative media that I don't think they could have ignored us. Okay, and so that's why they came out at the Washington Post and the uh, and the Rolling Stone and Airmail. The Washington Post, it was both Teresa Long and Max Boot, of all people. All right, and I replied to both of those as I did to Tim Weiner. I think it was a guy named James James Lipchick or something like that at Airmail. There was another one which I can't recall right now. That was the extent of the MSM coming after us. Okay, but the movies on November 22nd, JFK Revisited was number four on the documentaries for sale at Amazon. That's phenomenal because that movie has been available on DVD for a year, for one year. And I don't know if I announced this the last time I was on, but we just sold in Japan, Macau, and Hong Kong. I think it's about 13 different countries now that JFK Revisited has sold in, which is really remarkable, I believe. I don't think I don't think any other documentaries ever come close to that record. Out of the remaining, he says fourteen thousand. It's really four thousand documents still to be declassified. Do you believe more damning evidence exists to bolster your three main categories of the book? That is the president's brain, the, the fourth floor secretaries, Vicky, Sandy, and Dorothy, and CE three nine nine. That's a tough question to answer. I'm not really sure because. As people like Andrew Eiler, who was on your show, the lawyer from Hamilton, Ontario, 
expert on the uh, JFK Records Collection Act. As he noted in his last article, the finding aids are very weak. They're not very good. So it's hard to discern exactly what each document is about. So I'm not really sure I can answer that question accurately. So I'm, I'm not going to. Bearing in mind the historical fatal incidents surrounding this case, have you or Oliver ever felt threatened? Well, I know about Oliver, but I was threatened once a rather long time ago. It shook me up for a few days, but I decided, well, I can't live like this, you know, so I'm going to have to learn to live with it. Okay, and so that's, that's what I've done since. On release of the above documents, if it, if it ever comes to that, and by the way, I'm not so sure it's going to come to that because of what Biden did with the JFK Act, which that was me, you, and Andrew, right, Len? We did that show, okay, about what Biden did to the JFK Act. Yeah, right. So, Mr. Burke, if you haven't heard that show, go back and listen to it because I'm not so sure we're ever going to see those documents. What is the one scenario document you'd hope to discover that would reveal or lead to finding the absolute truth? I believe, okay, thank you for taking the time to read my email. I would have tweeted you, but I don't do the socials apart from my little radio show Facebook page. All right. This is what I think might happen if we get the documents, and I'm not sure. I think something will come out on either George Jolanides or Mexico City, okay? It might concern both. David Josephs has done some very good work on the monthly reports the CIA was getting out of Mexico City. He can't find anything on Oswald or anything to even describing Oswald in those monthly CIA reports, all right? And I think that's very important because we did do Mexico City in the film, but Oliver ended up cutting it out, okay, for, for length purposes. You know, I, I wish we would have kept it in because we had Danny and we had Eddie Lopez and Lisa Peace. We had those three people talking about Mexico City. And I believe that Mexico City is one of the key investigatory leads on the JFK case. Now, the other thing about George Joannides, just what did this guy know about Lee Harvey Oswald? And what did he communicate back to headquarters about Lee Harvey Oswald? That is something that's very, very important. And I think that's one of the reasons they don't want to declassify it. We do know from John Thunheim that there was a file that the CIA did not want to give the ARB on George Joannides. I think it was 300 pages. And we know from Jefferson Morley's lawsuit that the CIA did not want to give up its final work schedule on George Joannides. So I believe that those two things would probably be very important to this case. Okay, November the 26th, a guy named Greg Hilbers, okay? Until they exhume JFK and do an autopsy, this argument will never be settled. Maybe you don't want JFK exhumed. But this is the final word. I am not sure how JFK would be legally required to be exhumed. Would Caroline Kennedy as next of kin have to approve it? That's what would have to happen. You're right. Would the House of Representatives have to approve it? I don't think so. Again, maybe many would not seek this exhumation because it would, in fact, cut off their incomes. Just saying. 
They exhumed John Wilkes Booth. Well, I don't know if they exhumed John Wilkes Did they? I'm not sure about that. Okay, but I'll agree with that for now. Look, the exhumation of John F. Kennedy is not going to happen. All right? The Kennedy family does not want it to happen. And I can understand that in one way. All right? Now, would I like to see it happen? Yes. It, depending on how well-preserved the body is. I have no idea how well-preserved the body would be. But, yeah, I would like to see an exhumation. Just like I would like to see an exhumation of Conley to check out how many lead particles are in his body. All right? But these things are just not going to happen. They wanted Nellie Conley to order an exhumation of John Conley. She wouldn't do it. Caroline Kennedy is never going to order an exhumation of her father. Okay? And so, just so for people who don't know why that would happen, that uh, the doctor said that they left some lead in Governor Conley. There was yes. something that was too hard to get at, and they thought, you know, it's just sitting there on the bone, not doing it. We're just going to leave it there. Well, if it happened to be a considerable amount, or these days with whatever it is, the test they can do, neutron activation or whatever, whatever it is that they uh, find confident, they, they could, uh, you know, it's more evidence that would say this bullet's from a completely different batch from then the commission exhibits 399. Well, well that, that's one thing they could do. The other thing they could do is just weigh it, okay? <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Because I believe that, look, I believe there's too much lead missing already. Well, there's already photos of that. Even, I, yeah, I, right, know, right. I don't know, like, I'll pick a number. I think it was like Commission Exhibit 568, but there's a little Petri dish where there is some pieces of lead already there. Mm -hmm. And there's a photo of that. And um, right. you look at that, it's not very much, but it, it it's more than missing in the bullet. Yes, Okay, this is the last letter. This one is from November the 28th. Robert Hackman. Hi, Lennon, Jim. Great shows as always. It's amazing to me that the case is still very much alive and kicking, as well as it should be. Yeah, I believe the 60th proved that it was still alive and kicking. Could I ask a few questions, please? I recently listened to an audio tape of Raymond Brochier's testimony to the HSCA. I was not expecting it to be credible, but I was surprised by a few comments. He states that David Ferry told him the names of three shooters. He could not remember two of them, but one was a three-barreled name, which was Cuban and included Garcia. This would appear to me to be Hermano Diaz Garcia. I know his name has arisen from other sources as a possible shooter, which is true. Fabian Escalante, the former head of Cuban counterintelligence, stated in the late 90s that Tony Cuesta referenced Garcia as a shooter when Cuesta was in captivity. I think that's accurate. Jerry Hemming, I appreciate he may be a dubious source. I agree he's a dubious source. Stated that Garcia was a spotter in a Tal Dal Tex building, which why Oliver Stone cast a black actor in this role in the film JFK. I read that Garcia was involved in a 1957 assassination attempt on the Costa Rican president, but I cannot find much information on this. What are your thoughts on this, please? Well, Garcia has been mentioned, like the writer says. Uh, I think it's also by Larry Hancock. And it's through this Tony Cuesta thing, right? And Cuesta went to Escalante when Cuesta was imprisoned and in very bad shape in Cuba and told him about this, about the whole Diaz thing. Is Brochier possibly credible on this point? Well, yeah, he might be. 
it could be a distraction factor similar to those Gaten Fonzie said he suffered on some of his investigation. But it seems a strange distraction technique as the Cuban angle does seem to be the key to at least some of Oswald's activities. Also, brochures mentioned Sergio Arcacio-Smith. To me, he is likely involved in some way. Well, I certainly agree with that. And this leads to the next question. Can you throw any more light on this story that Arcacio-Smith had a map of the drain system in Dallas? What was his source and what, oh, and what would the map do? Okay. Francis Fruget was the state trooper who was working for Jim Garrison on the Rose Jeremy case. And he did some very good work on it. When he went to that saloon, Jeremy was her last stop on the freeway going from Louisiana to, to Texas. Garrison gave him a sheaf of photos to show to the, the bartender, Mac Manuel as to who were the two men who were with Jeremy. One of the pictures he picked out was Emilio Santana, but the other picture he picked out was Sergio Arcacio-Smith. And this is how Fruget became interested in Sergio Arcacio-Smith. And by the way, to show you how blind-tested this was, Fruget said he didn't even know some of these characters that Garrison had given him pictures of, all right? But Garrison had printed their names on the back. And so that's how he ended up figuring out that it was Smith and Santana. Now, Fruget then became interested in Sergio Arcacio-Smith. And he apparently interfaced with the Dallas police about this. And he had an informant on the Dallas police that told him that the police inspected Sergio Arcacio Smith's apartment in, in Dallas. That's where he was living at the time. And they had found a diagram of the sewer system under Dealey Plaza. Now, why is this important? Because as many people suspect, and I'm talking a lot of people these days, one of the things the assassins could have done was to, they're behind, well, at least there used to be, I'm not so sure today, behind the picket fence where the picket fence shuts out, where it goes from horizontally on Elm Street, a parallel, to going perpendicular. There is a sewer grate there. And either the guy could have jumped in to that sewer grate there, okay, to hide, or else he could have even traveled through the sewer grate. The sewer grate. And by the way, somebody proved you could do it. A lot of people said you couldn't, but somebody actually proved that you could do it. And that would have been a great hiding place to just stay down there until night passed. And that's why it's so very, very important on, in an investigatory lead. Question number three. In the book, Oswald talked... The Fontaines made reference to three possible shooters, Escalante giving references. He believed they died after November 22nd, but their deaths were backdated prior to November 22nd. He speculates the backdating was to dissociate them from the assassination. The names were Carlos Rocca, Julio Garcia, and Sergio Perez. On reflection, perhaps Garcia was the Garcia that Brochures mentions. Have you any thoughts on these names? I can find little information on them. You know something? I can't find any information on them either. Unless, as the writer notes, Robert notes, that maybe perhaps the Garcia is confused, okay, with the Hermanio Diaz Garcia. 
But no, I don't know who those names were. There is a book on this, on the revolution. Well, first of all, if you don't know who Jaime Escalante was, Escalante was the chief of G2 in Cuba at the time of the Kennedy assassination, which meant he ran military intelligence for Castro. His job was obviously to protect Castro. And so he had files on all these CIA plots to try and kill him. And he had, because he had penetration agents in the United States, they would be able to infiltrate these anti-Cuban exile groups and find out what was going on. And so Escalante had kept files on this. And I missed, I missed a chance to meet him, by the way, because back, I believe, in 1996, Escalante came to Rio de Janeiro and met with some American researchers. I was invited to go, but I couldn't get a passport at that time. I, I missed that chance to meet him. But I believe that woman who sponsored that, that meeting put out a book, which I can't recall the name of right now. But I, if I, I did read the book, and it's a pretty interesting book. And a lot of his revelations are actually in that book. Okay, so somebody can think up of the name of that book. Please send it in, and I'll mention it on the air. All right, last question. Why would the plotters frame Oswald with the Carcano rifle? It makes people raise questions on its accuracy, ability to fire rapidly, etc., why not frame Oswald with a decent rifle to take these questions away? Similarly, does it make sense to impersonate him at the shooting range, for example, when such stories point more towards a conspiracy than a lone shooter? Hence, the stories need to be shut down. It strikes me as a clumsy, maybe non-professional frame-up rather than a more sophisticated operation. Your thoughts would be appreciated. Well, one reason is... That was the cheapest rifle. If you take a look at the ad, the rifle itself was something like 1298. It was only with the scope that it came in at even $19. The other much better rifles, you know, like the M1, were like $71.98. Okay. And that was to try and understand why Oswald would order a rifle that expensive with the money he was making. Uh, is, is would be very hard to explain. Now, the important thing, though, wasn't, I believe, in the actual conspiracy. The important thing was not to, uh, not to have a high-performance rifle. Okay, and by the way, I actually believe a high-performance rifle was used. I believe it was a Mauser, but let's disregard that for now. It was to connect that bullet to the rifle. That was the key to the plot. Once the bullet was connected to the rifle, most people thought that it was an open and shut case. That was the key element of the cover-up, I believe. Look, take a look at this way. About the impersonations, and I have to give Matt Crumpton a lot of credit. In our new book, which I contributed a couple of chapters to, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds, he writes a marvelous chapter on the impersonations of Oswald, and I believe it's the most expansive chapter I've ever seen on that subject. So if you have, for example, things like, you know, Oswald shopping at a Mercury dealership for a car and saying that I'm going to be coming in to a lot of money and then driving the car around like he's uh, at the Indianapolis 500 
and then backing out of the deal, but leaving his name there to linger in the wind. And then you have another Oswald at a rifle range saying not only was he firing at his own target, he's firing at the next target, mentioning Kennedy's name. I think that is pretty good evidence to show intent before the crime. Now, as for the reasons why these were etched out, okay, and negated, I think it's I think it's pretty clear that the pressure was on from Washington to limit the crime to Oswald. In other words, there was not not going to be any insinuation of a communist conspiracy, which I believe was the first intent. You know, I think that people like Angleton, like Dulles, wanted it to be a communist conspiracy for political reasons, of course. So they could go after Cuba, they could go after Russia, you know, and Johnson and Hoover stamped that out. And that's why I think those were not those were not effective. They were Richard Popkin wrote a very interesting book that gets overlooked most of the time called The Second Oswald, I believe in 1967. And that one was dedicated, it was one of the earliest books there was to try and make sense of these impersonations. And because the whole movement to go to a nuclear strike or a war against Cuba was stamped out, I believe that's, that's the reason that they were not used in a more dramatic fashion. So what ended up happening, of course, instead, was they shifted the focus to Vietnam. That became then the way to do something that Kennedy did not want to do, all right? That became the way for the military war machine to go ahead and make an immense amount of money off a war that was pretty pointless and that JFK was not going to get involved in. I think that happened as basically that was Johnson's idea to do. Okay, so that's it for the questions. So let's go to the WECT conference. And I think you could have maybe Paul Blow on to talk about the JFK Lancer conference. Sure, yeah, good idea. Okay, the highlight of this conference for me personally was the dinner that I believe was on Thursday night dedicated to Cyril Wecht. Cyril is not in very good shape. I don't know if you know this, but he's in a wheelchair and he's like 92 years old. And so this dinner was a tribute to him. And they showed a film about him and Gary Aguilar and David Mantic read tributes to him because he was so influential in bringing them into the JFK case. All right. That for me personally, seeing Cyril there was the personal highlight for me. Now, let's go to the program. All right. I would say there's about 250 people there. And you had on opening night, you had Barbara Perry, who is a PhD and Alec Baldwin. Barbara Perry did a kind of lecture on JFK's presidency, which I was not really happy about because it was a conventional view of Kennedy, a scholastic view of Kennedy. She actually said words to the effect that Kennedy was slow to civil rights, which is the conventional wisdom in academia, when in fact Kennedy issued the first affirmative action order in American history in March of 1961, two months after he took office. Then he issued a second one 
The first one was for government operations. The second was for all government contracting, which meant that if you, for example, made uniforms for the Navy, that you had to integrate your textile shop, okay? So I don't think, the reason Kennedy did not submit a bill to Congress is because he was advised by Johnson, for example, that it wouldn't pass in 61 or 62. And Harris Wofford, his civilian advisor, uh, his civil rights advisor, excuse me, also said the same thing, that you're not going to be able to get something through in 61 or 62 because the Southern filibuster is just too powerful. Okay. And Wofford said you might be able to get one through in 1963. Uh, and that's what happened. So JFK uh, put his bill through in February, his first bill through in February of 1962. And then a chain of events in the field like Wallace at Alabama and the Birmingham demonstration. This helped bring strong attention to it. And then King did that speech in August of 1963, but it still took a year to pass that bill. That's how strong the Southern filibuster was. She actually recommended Silverstone's book on Vietnam, which I think Silverstone's book is basically a distraction. Okay, I'm very surprised she didn't recommend, you know, like Fletcher Prouty or John Newman or James Blight or somebody like that, but that's the way academia works, all right? Okay, on the second day, it was Aguilar, Thompson, and DeSalis, and Bill Simpich talking about the evidence for two headshots. It included the whole thing about, in Thompson's second book, Last Second in Dallas, about the blood and tissue and bone going over to the left side of the car, you know, which I think is pretty convincing evidence. You know, and, and it hits them, hits these guys, you know, on the the second guy. I think it was Hargis. It hits him on the right side of the face. Okay, because he's shielded by the first guy in front of him. And that whole analysis, I believe, is very effective. And when I reviewed Thompson's book, I said that was the best part of the book. Then there came Landis. Okay, Landis was there for two talks. One was with his co-author, James Robinault. And Landis was there for the whole two days, and he stayed at the same hotel that I did, the Cambria. And Robinault was essentially like his escort. And he did the interview with Landis when Landis first came up on stage. And then they brought Cyril out. Okay, with the president of the college, and they talked to Landis also. So Landis was essentially the star of Thursday. Oh, I didn't talk about Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin talked about how MSNBC censored his show on the, I believe it was the 50th anniversary. I think it was the 50th, and it might have been the 55th, one or the other. He had a talk show on MSNBC. And he, and this is something I didn't know, he had already interviewed the people he wanted to talk to, one of them being James Douglas, okay? In other words, he had the films in the can. Then after he did the interviews, it was a, he said there was a very short lead time, like from Tuesday to Friday. They called him in and told him they weren't running it because they had were reconciled to the Warren Report, okay? And he actually said, I don't know what happened to the film. 
he didn't even know what happened to the film, which is really, really something. Talk about censorship. Okay, so let's go back to Thursday now. One of the most effective presentations, I thought, was by Doug Horn. Two brain exams following JFK's autopsy. I'm really glad that he did that because I think that was one of the best points in his book, okay, Inside the ERB. And I was really glad to see that Doug was there because he told me he had retired from the field, but I guess he got resuscitated through JFK Revisited and he decided to go ahead and attend this one. I thought he was good in JFK Revisited and I thought he was good here. It's, it's very interesting because he lays out the evidence that there were really two brain examinations, one about on the 25th and one about a week or so later. And he makes the point, how could there be a second one? Because a whole brain examination, what you do is you section off the brain, okay? Either in the what they call the bread loaf style in series or the pie cut style in diagonals. So if there was really a brain examination on the first date, say the 25th, how could there possibly be another one afterwards? He, th he tends to believe that the whole supplementary brain report was a charade. So his, I thought his presentation was very effective, very interesting. Now, I didn't know some of these were made with concurrent shows because there were so many people who wanted to present evidence. All right. So I did not see Don Thomas's on the acoustic because I've already seen him a couple of times. All right. I went to David Mantic's Zapruder film Alteration. Okay. And he had Brigoni, Dino Brigoni, had a film of an interview with Brigoni and two film experts who had seen the Sidney Wilkinson case for Alteration of the Zapruder film. And that was that was pretty interesting. All right. That was a pretty interesting presentation. All right. Now, because of that, I also didn't see the one on General Walker. That was delivered by Ben Cole, who I think you've had on your show. Right. And he lives in Thailand. So he came in by Zoom and Larry Schnapp was the guy presenting that uh, on the floor. I went to Jerry Croft's. The Oswald Letter, an analysis of dyslexia, dyslexia and how it changes our understanding of the assassination. What he's saying here is that the Dear Mr. Hunt letter is not a forgery, that it was written by Oswald. And he made a very good case that it did. First of all, this whole thing about the Russians making it up, and, and which I've always said on this show, with the Matrokin book, okay, uh, which went to the guy who was the uh, MI6 writer in England, okay, for translation and for presentation. He says, and by the way, he's not the only one. He went to the files for the book because he wanted to see the evidence that Matrokin had. Matrokin was a defector, the low-level defector who said that he hand-wrote all these uh, or retyped all of these Russian KGB files and came to England, all right, to escape, all right? He said there's nothing, absolutely nothing, at Cambridge, which is where those files are, that makes the case that it was a KGB plot. 
But he said what he tried to do was find a word that Oswald had misspelled because due to his dyslexia in the letter that would match something it previously misspelled in another letter, and he found one. Okay, I think it was concerting for concerting. Okay, and so he makes the case that Oswald really did write that letter. And by the way, there were two or three handwriting analysts down in Texas who also said that it was a genuine letter. So this whole Russian thing, which I've always warned about, your listeners about, as being nothing but a way to get the CIA off the hook, okay? Okay, uh, now for those who are listening that don't know what letter in particular you're talking about, describe the letter. Oh, okay. It's a letter that was written, I believe, like in November, in early November, okay? All right, and Oswald... Uh, it's signed by Oswald, all right? And what he does there, it's addressed to a guy, uh, dear Mr. Hunt, okay? Uh, and it was signed by Oswald, and it asks for information, okay, concerning my my position, all right? Now... As I said, as I said, um, there were people that looked at this in Texas, all right, who said that they thought that it was really Oswald, okay, all right. Now, the other problem is, all right, well, let, let, let me actually go ahead and and read the letter, okay? It's dated November the 8th, 1963. Dear Mr. Hunt, I would like information, okay, considering my position. I am asking only for information. I, I am suggesting we discuss the matter fully before any steps are taken by me or anyone else. Thank you, Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. The first sentence says, I would like information concerning my position. All right. But it's not written like that. Okay. It's misspelled. And Jerry Cross found another letter written before this one that matches the misspelling. Okay. Right. Now, but why, why would this be important? Well, I mean, well, Len, it's only like two and a half weeks before the assassination. And if he's writing a letter to E. Howard Hunt asking for information concerning his position. No, no, I know that. I'm just asking you to, to, to reiterate, reiterate that to the audience. Sorry, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting letter. And so the, I believe that the, uh, the CIA used the KGB to discredit it, okay, because it is so interesting, all right, and because some people think it was real, all right. Now, the other suspect that some people think, all right, it was um, that it it might have been the billionaire H. L. Hunt, okay, and so Jerry Croth 
the guy who presented this evidence, um, he believes that it was the E. Howard Hunt, that it's more probable that it was E. Howard Hunt. So, and I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, presentation. As you can see, it was a pretty good conference, all right? Uh, Russell Kent was there, and he did a demolition of the Rockefeller Commission, you know, the, the medical panel there. You've had him on your show, and he yeah. shows how these guys were handpicked, all right, and uh, came to a false conclusion about the medical evidence. They only met, I believe, Russell Kent said, for maybe a day or two. So there was no real investigation by the Rockefeller Committee, okay? Uh, so that was more or less kind of a joke, all right? I didn't see Mark, your buddy, Mark DeValk. He talked about Ruby. Dan Alcorn talked about Harold Byrd, the guy who owned the TSBD building. That was interesting. Harold Byrd is a very interesting character because he has so many connections to so many people in the Dallas area, okay? Uh, and he was a very hardcore right-winger, and I think, as you know, he, he was one of the founders of the Civil Air Patrol, okay, which is another very interesting aspect of, uh, of Harold Byrd. Uh, Andrew Keel, who I believe you also had in your show, he did J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson, about how they did everything they could to obstruct the uh, Warren Commission investigation and to control it. Okay, I liked it better on Hoover than anybody had on Johnson. Then they had Robert Groden, who was contesting David Mantic. He came in and argued that um, that the Warren the Zapruder film was actually authentic. All right, Rob Reiner zoomed in. And we asked him questions about his new podcast, uh, which is on iHeartRadio. Then I did uh, the death of JFK and the rise of the neocons. Okay. And I have to say, you know, a lot of people were really surprised by the stuff I presented because it was nobody ever talked about this before. But I tried to prove that the rise of the neocon and their foreign policy was directly related to the death of JFK and would not have happened if JFK had lived, all right? Um, then I think it was, the last one was uh, David Talbot. He came in via Zoom, okay? And he signed off and he, and you know, do you know what they did to him, by the way? Are you aware of this? The New York Times requested that he write a column for the anniversary saying what they thought, what he thought the new evidence was in the JFK case. So he did. In fact, he asked me for a recommendation of a couple of things that I thought were good. And I wrote him back saying, look, if the New York Times prints this, I'll have a stroke. Okay, well, guess what? They didn't print it. They wrote him a little note back saying that they weren't going to print. In other words, the same thing happened to Alec Baldwin back in the 50s or the 55th happened to David Talbot this time around. Okay. So in other words, the New York Times is ready to give us Landis, but they weren't ready to give us David Talbot. All right. 
So all in all, I thought it was a, a very good conference. I, I really enjoyed myself. You know, uh, there were a lot of interesting people there and a lot of very appreciative people. And a lot of the presentations I thought were pretty interesting. All right. So um, there is a review, okay, by me of the WEC conference, the 60th, and uh, at Duquesne. And um, I, like I said, you're going to have to get somebody else to talk about Deborah Conway's conference down there in Dallas. Maybe Larry Hancock or Paul Blow or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right, for sure. Okay, well, very good. And uh, we took some questions. And like I said, there were a number of interviews that were on, uh, if it was on the internet or or streaming, uh, like you mentioned, um, that were uh, of, of interest, you know. And I think that the long one with Oliver Stone for two hours was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Geez, Ray McGovern, he he was just phenomenal, and uh, Jeffrey Sachs, and the, you know people that are that are heavy hitters. I didn't hear the George Galloway uh, show, but I've seen many. You know, he he's a real um, serious person. You know. So. Yeah, I think Matt Crumpton. They gave him about fifteen minutes on the George Galloway show, yeah. which I think was a very nice thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's just, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think leading up to it with uh, Biden, kind of, I, I the last kind of offhand quote I heard was that just these are never going to be released. So they're back. They've, they've been sent back to the CIA for a reevaluation. And you know they're not going to ever release Well, them. If, if you read Andrew's article, which is still up at Kennedy's and King, or if you go ahead and go back to his show with me, you, and him on it. Andrew's a very adept attorney who works for a very good law firm in Hamilton, Ontario. All right. And him and Mark Adamchik were both the other co-authors on this book, the JFK assassination chokeholds. All right. They really knew this law. And what Biden did was in some ways worse than what Trump did. And I, I believe I mentioned this at the conference because when I was on stage, somebody asked me about this and Andrew was there. Andrew drove down from Ontario. OK, and uh, he was at the conference. And uh, and I said, I believe what Biden did was in some ways worse than what Trump did. And if you don't believe me, ask Andrew Eiler. He's right here. He wrote a very good article for Kennedy's and King about it. All right. Uh, and. What what Biden did, I believe, was take away the power of the Congress in a blatant power grab. You know, the JFK Records Collection Act was an act of Congress. And we're supposed to have in this country something called separation of powers. All right. And you're not supposed to be able to do that. But Biden did do it. Okay. And I think it's kind of outrageous when you think about it. And it tells us a lot about our Congress. Where they don't raise a peep about it. They're too busy with things like Hunter Biden. Okay. Then to worry about the death of President Kennedy. 
All right. So anyway, th anyway, that's that is a very, very, very troubling issue. Okay, in this JFK case, what Joe Biden did to the JFK Collections Act, and let's not forget, Joe Biden voted for that act when he was a senator back in Delaware. All right. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and another reason why some of these shows may have got on without a lot of uh, backlash is that the world situation with you know, never mind the Ukraine war, but this trouble in Israel, and I think an unexpected backlash to that for, uh, you know, that's just taken over the news and kind of taken all the well, air. That, well, that's, that's another thing that was surprising is that the JFK thing got so much attention, even though you had this thing going on in Ukraine and this thing going on in Gaza. And right. yet we still managed to get... You know, some pretty good stories out there. Well, what I'm saying is that these people who normally would be, have time to write disinformation about JFK conferences and that, they were too busy putting out fires with, uh, you know, with this other situation going on. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, I wound up my presentation because everybody says, you know, like, what does the murder of JFK have to do with today? I ended my presentation by saying that, in my opinion, if JFK, if JFK had lived, considering his relationship with Gamal Abdel Nasser, the leader of the Arab world at that time, okay, I do not believe there would have been a 1967 war. And I said, so if anybody asks you, why should we be talking about JFK? What difference does it make today? My recommendation is say, well, everything including Gaza. Okay, that's why I recommend that's how I ended up my my talk. All right, very good, Jim. Well, once again, thank you for spending this last hour or so uh, for Black Op Radio and I just I always appreciate your time and and the more I do this, I really want to make sure that I let people know that we do, we do appreciate your time. Uh, you okay, know, thank you so much, Lynn. Yeah. And don't forget the website, kennedysandking.com. Right. All right. And um, don't forget the new book, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds. And like I said, I have one last copy of JFK Revisited. Okay. All right. For autograph. Thank you so much. All right. All right. We'll talk to you again in next week or so. All right. Good night. Okay, bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. I'm your host, Blen Osanek. Today we're speaking to researcher, author, Paul Blow from Quebec City in Quebec. Welcome. Bonjour. Bonjour, Len. Comment ça va? Ça va bien. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, fellow Canadian. And we're just mentioning that people from all around the world are interested in this. And many Canadians, many people from uh, the UK, um, Australia, all over the world. Scandinavia, and um, we're just happy to talk about what we have a common interest is in the um, in the details of an assassination and what really happened, and then you get to c contrast that to what a government and and you know investigative body said happened, and then as an average citizen you look into it and you go, well, they're lying, they're they're misrepresenting, and maybe that helps you get a grasp on you know 
what you should trust? Should we trust the 9-11 report? Should we trust what they uh, said about Bobby Kennedy's assassination? And um, so today we're going to get to talking about the conferences that happened on the 60th anniversary. And I just spoke to Jim DiEugenio um, earlier today and uh, recorded that. And um, that is about the Dallas conference he went to. And Uh, no, no, he went to the Pittsburgh one. And you were in Dallas at the Lancer conference. So I was hoping listeners could get a report, an update of what your experiences were and um, what happened on the 60th there. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, last year was my first time at a conference. I went to the Kappa conference in Dallas. Incredible. You know, I, I had extended it for uh, a number of days to go and see (laughs) a Dallas Cowboys game on Thanksgiving. And you can't get to know Texas any better than that. (laughs) It was great. Last year, I also met a lot of people, including some of the authors for our book. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the chokeholds, because that was the topic of my talk. I I, I was one of the speakers in Dallas. Last year, also, I met uh, Matt Doubthit, which was amazing because um, Mark Adamsick had given me a little bit of a tour of Daily Plaza. And Matt Doubt, what he did, he, he's from uh, the Dallas area. He's a researcher, and I got to know him down there. And he showed me Oswald's escape all the way to his arrest in the uh, Texas theater. Look, it was inch by inch. It was just so revealing, you know, to do that. And then we even visited the... Uh, Neely house where the backyard photos were taken. We went in the backyard. We actually took photos near that staircase. It was an unbelievable experience for someone who's only seen pictures, you know, of the assassination and the surroundings and everything to be there. I met uh, I met Neil Safadi. The reason I mentioned Neil Safadi is he's turned into a dear friend because he last September invited me to his home where I gave a talk with a a UK Daily Plaza group in uh, Canterbury, England. And this year, I have to say it was more all business. I spent almost the entire time in the hotel. It was uh, four days, three nights, and uh, it was during the uh, Lancer conference. Quite a bit different from Kappa. Different people, different format. And I have to say, Lancer was a conveyor belt of speakers every hour on the hour for three, or I'm saying three, I think it's even, yeah, three days there were speakers all the way till 8 p.m. on Sunday. And it started on uh, Friday at one o'clock in the afternoon. I've never seen that intensity. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend all the talks because over and above speaking about my conference, uh, our book. They wanted to know more about our book. I did some networking, and I was also interviewed a number of times. So I missed some of the speakers. But, you know, we heard from all sorts of people. I got to finally meet Dick Russell, Len. Dick Russell was the first presenter, and I found that really impressive. I was able to discuss certain things with him. Then uh, one of the highlights is uh, the the daughter of Marita Lorenz, Monica Perez Jimenez, spoke and she spoke of her relationship with her mother with frank sturgis and that whole area of information surrounding miami jm wave and it's a story that has an awful lot of controversy to it because marita lorenz is taken seriously by some and 
less seriously by others. But her presentation, I would say, was riveting. It, it was so heartfelt and impressive. And I was able to share a table with her that evening and we chatted and she came across as extremely genuine. Anyway, I can't wait to hear more from her. Speaking of Matt, Matt did a nice presentation around the Tippett assassination. I really appreciated that one because, you know, we're, we're, there are so many different specialists in our field. And I can't say that I've studied the, the Tippett assassination as well as other stuff. Last year was my first four-way into that because of Matt and his presentation today. He really went through Ebony, you know, a great timeline, witness by witness, and brought up an awful lot of the um, problems with what the Warren Commission says about uh, the uh, Tippett assassination and how Oswald was responsible for it. I mean, there's so much, oh boy, I mean, there's so much controversy about what different witnesses said. I mean, when you think of how the lineups were organized to make Oswald look guilty, one lineup, he, you know, he shows up with a black eye and a white t-shirt and other people have vests on, you know, so he stuck out like a sore thumb. Anyway, that was an interesting presentation. I went right after him. I'll get back to mine a little later. Jeff Meek presented. Jeff Meek is the person who has become a good friend of ours. He's one of the people who uh, found an awful lot of information about the spectrographic analysis of Kennedy's necktie and his shirt collar. And to say the least, it's very problematic, you know, what he found. In other words, the forensics around the tie and the um, the tie and the collar seem to confirm that the single bullet it can't be true because the debris or the metallic debris on Kennedy's back and Connolly's back are existent, are there, but yet can't be found on the necktie and the collar. So if you have a ball, a bull, the same bullet transiting from Kennedy's back going out through the collar and leaving debris all over the place, but isn't the same as, you know, the what's found on the necktie. And then you have the Parkland doctors saying that the wound in the neck was a wound of entrance. I mean, it all dovetails to say that, hey, that, that's not the single bullet that caused that, you know, and anyway, so that was really, he, Jeff was uh, absolutely great. Another guy, Len, that I find absolutely fantastic is Dave Boyland. He talked about Silviadio and her visitors. Silviadio, of course, being one of the most controversial aspects of the whole case because Silviadio, shortly before the assassination, in and around the time that Oswald was supposed to be in Mexico City, received an Oswald, a Leon Oswald, who had two Latino escorts with him. And based on, and the thing with Sylvia is she talked about this really weird experience. And the whole point of that meeting was to make Oswald look unhinged and, you know, someone who could be easy, capable of killing Kennedy. So what was amazing about that is she spoke to at least three different people and her sister witnessed the appearance of these uh, this trio. So anyway, Dave Boylan talked about that. And I'll talk to you a little bit later, Len, about what I, because I, I had long chats with David. You know, an awful lot goes on during these meetings, not necessarily during the presentations, but in the side rooms or during a supper. I'll talk to you what 
Remind me to tell you what transpired between discussions between me and David, because I think it'll be really interesting for the case going forward. One of the best virtual presentations, because a lot of them were virtual, a lot of them were in person, was from William Matson Law. I did not read his book, but I've used an awful lot of his material in my writings from what I found on the web and other stuff. And he described his discussions with key witnesses, and he went into their personalities and so on and so forth. One of the most important testimonies that he wrote about was by Seibert and, and O'Neill. So Seibert uh, and O'Neill being the FBI agents who were present at Bethesda. And he described that exchange. And anybody can believe in the single bullet theory. Uh, you know, just to make it clear, Seibert and O'Neill wrote a report. They, they made a description of a bullet wound that was just too far down in the back to be able to have exited by Kennedy's neck, ergo completely repudiating the single bullet theory. So what did the Warren Commission do, decide to do with that? Well, they decided not to question them and take their testimony. <laughs> you know, two FBI agents present at the autopsy. And what their, their whole report, when it became declassified and everything, I think is one of the biggest smoking guns there is to eliminate the the single bullet theory. So that was an extremely interesting presentation. Larry Hancock and Dave Boylan, I'll talk to you about them because they often team up. And I'll tell you where I think their research is really important a little later. I missed a few things, but Rex Bradford gave a very good accounting of where we're la landed at in the declassification. In other words, how many records have been declassified? What records have not been declassified? What are the possibilities of maybe seeing some declassification in the future? Uh, it sounded pretty bleak. Uh, what we're referring to here, of course, is Biden's, well, under Biden, the ruling to no longer declassify anything as per the JFK Act, because everything was supposed to have been declassified by 2017, unless things were singled out by either Biden and Trump to say, well, this still can't be declassified. I, and I'm paraphrasing here, minimizing, uh, you know, but it, uh, unless uh, for such and such a region, normally being national security or, or perhaps revealing the name of a key person, but they're all dead, you know, by now, anybody. And so it doesn't make sense. So they, they came up with a blanket ruling to say, oh, well, you know what, we're done for now, uh, but, you know, we'll let every agency or intelligence arm come up with their own transparency plan. Anyway, so there's nothing definite that will come out of that. Uh, let me go on. Uh, Johnny Kearns, I didn't hear his presentation, but he and I, I met him. He's one of the very good young contacts. It's in Jim's network and part of UK Daily Plaza. Really cool guy. I think that uh, he, he's doing an awful lot of interesting research. We had Bart Camp, you know, presented virtually about uh, his book. And I have to say, I, I'm going to order his book. But what I've seen so far, because I saw an interview of him, I read a critique of his book. And what he, you see, these are things, Len, I, I, I never really got into the whole 
analysis of what happened in and around the assassination. For me, you know, the fact that there's a conspiracy is sort of a slam dunk. So I, I'm not really attracted into by getting more information around that, except lately I have because of the book we wrote. And, and you know, what I didn't know, you, you, look, what's amazing, right? And this is what Bart did, and he did a great service, I think, is because, if you can believe it, the Warren Commission neither taped the 12 hours of questioning of Oswald before he was assassinated, nor did they have a stenographer. How crazy is that? So you just said Warren Commission. I think you mean Dallas Police. Dallas Police. You're absolutely right. Thank you for for correcting me on that. So there's no uh, stenographer or taping taking place. Will Fritz, one of the guys who asked the most questions for the Dallas police, didn't even take notes. He did not take notes. So uh, Bart Camp, what he did is he was able to put together quite a few of the notes because, you know, sometimes there were six people present during a, a part of the interrogation. Sometimes there's fewer, sometimes there's more. So he was able to find raw data to put together an awful lot of what Oswald claimed. And look, think of Oswald's alibi. Oswald gave an alibi. He said he was drinking a Coke, right? And that he was having lunch on the first floor of the Texas School Book Depository. And he mentions two people, two black people. One of them is named Junior. The other one, he didn't know his name. Okay, so let's let, let's think of this for a minute. Now, when Junior and the, his friend were interrogated, they said, oh, yeah, we were there. And there was someone present, but, uh, you know, quite honestly, we, we can't identify him. Sounds like two people who are more afraid than anything else. But think of it this way. How could Oswald have known that they were there, right? I mean, he, he just happened to pick the two people who were having lunch there. Now, was that, you said first floor. Did you mean second floor? No, he said first floor. So no, good, no problem. He said first floor, but the second floor is where he would have got to get the coke. Yeah. Okay. And then Bart Camp says, well, okay, this is what I'm reading from Sylvia Mahara, because I happen to be reading Accessories After the Fact. So let me combine the two. Sylvia Mahara says that he also told the people questioning him that he later went out to watch the parade with Shelley and the others. Now, of course, you think that the questioners would try and get every single inch and minute down pat. But there seems to be the avoidance of trying to get exactly what he did. You know, like uh, when you left, where did you go? Who gave you a lift? How did you get to the Texas theater? You know, all these normal questions there that, that would be the minutia. We don't see it anywhere. But anyway, so Sylvia Mahar says, well, as a comment, she says, well, how did he know that Shelley went out, you know, to see the parade? Then one thing I found pretty, you know, and I'll let your listeners determine how important it is. He was showing photos of the stairway to the Texas School Book Depository. And he says, look, you can see a lunch bag there and a Coke. He says, I would bet my right arm that if you lifted Prince off of that Coke bottle, they'd be uh, Oswald's. <laughs> anyway, so he got into the fuzzy picture. The other thing he did that I, in that book, that's he went through process of elimination. In other words, he, through all the depositions, he's able to say, here's 
who was where from the Texas School Book Depository. Then if you eliminate the uh, black employees, because the person in the fuzzy picture that he talks about is Caucasian, uh, you know, I think he has it down to three or four potential people, one of them being Oswald, if you assume that it's a Texas School Book Depository employee. Uh, again, I have to read the book, but uh, from what I heard of his presentation, it was absolutely fabulous, you know, so um, there's some good work that was done there. Um, other than that, Mark Gruber and Eric Hundley, they showed an awful lot of artificial intelligence applications to be able to, you know, say you would do a, a book and it would be an audio version. If you want to have Oswald's voice, uh, they've captured, I mean, they, you know, the people they work with have captured Oswald's voice and the voice of other people. And you're able to get Oswald's voice in the audiobook version, you know, if you're quoting him, for instance, or, or, or someone. That was interesting. Um, I think there's still some work to be done on emotion and, you know, different different feelings, but there, there, that, I've, that got an awful lot of people's attention. Uh, one of the people who sold the show, uh, Len, was a young guy, 14 years old, a guy called Alex Harris. He did an amazing present a presentation on now I'm trying to think I think it's called the Dallas Cinema Association something like that let me let me just check it out maybe I can find this yeah the DCA film okay so there's a DCA film the Dallas Cinema Association I never knew this but after the assassination a whole bunch of people who were along the motorcade route who took film and pictures, got together and put their stuff together. And he went through that whole uh, presentation. I, I don't know how new it is to uh, many of the people there, but it was new to me. And, you know, it, it, it was an amazing presentation for a 14 year old. And I think useful, you know, because you, you, you see, you know, like this whole idea that one of the reasons the a bullet hole in Kennedy's jacket and shirt. The claim by some of the apologists about why they're that low, you know, because they correspond to a low back wound, you know, something near the shoulder blade. Well, they'll say, oh yeah, but his clothing was bunched up. So if you look at the pictures throughout the motorcade route and you look at Kennedy, who's a well-tailored guy, there is a bit of a, a little bit of a hump in the neck, maybe because of his back brace, I'm not sure. But nothing that would explain a rise of three or four inches there. You know, there's there's absolutely nothing. So he, he Alex was um, great. For me, one of the highlights, Len, and it was towards the very end, is I, I was sitting down during one of the presentations and two people came up and joined me at my table. And it happened to be uh, Robert and Janet Groden. So they sat down beside me and I had to leave the room, but a little later on they were presenting and Robert just sat down and he presented, you know, some of the highlights of his career. It was extremely touching. And then he took questions and look, people couldn't get their arms down to, you know, 
uh, and it asks, well, you know, try and think of this. The question, let me give you one, is, you know, the, the, the throat shot. So the question is, where did the bullet end up? So I don't want to put words in Robert's uh, mouth because I kind of came towards the middle of the explanation. He said he saw x-rays that showed a bullet in Kennedy's chest. So it could have deviated, deviated down the spine, the spinal cord. Uh, the other thing that he mentioned is if you look at the back pictures, you'll see a, a very small hole that looks like an entry uh, hole, and you'll see a wider one. And I, I think he was saying that it could have been uh, perhaps the exit for the front, the front, uh, uh, front, uh, sorry, um, wound. Anyway, that was a good question. So look, uh, I'm giving you some of the highlights. I, I hope I didn't miss anyone. Some of the people I may not have spoken about is because I had to be absent. Um, so no that, problem. That, but overall, it was very enjoyable. You're saying. It, it, it was. It wasn't a, like last year. I got more enjoyment because I had time to go and visit Daily Plaza and uh, you know stay around and, and get to see the sights all, all the more. But here, I would say that it was a very good quality. Deborah Conway did a great job. Gabriella, her assistant, was amazing. Uh, so uh, you know, and it was a nice hotel. And I think uh, Ocelli. They, uh, Geez, I'm trying to think of his first name. Chuck. Chuck Ocelli, yeah. Charles Chuck Ocelli. I spoke with him quite a bit. He, he was a good animator. And um, look, he, he, uh, there were some book sales there. Um, what's the name of the fellow who has his luncher? Is it Gallup? Who has a... Yeah, Chris Gallup. Chris Gallup. I got to has meet him. He was selling. Yeah. I bought some books from him. So that, that, in terms of the presentation, Lynn, I was really, really power-packed there. Now, I understand from uh, Len and, um, not Len, but Jim and Andrew Eiler, the other, the other three authors uh, who went to, uh, three of our authors who went to the uh, Cyril Wecht Institute conference, uh, were up there, we decided to split up, you know, to, to promote our book. And, uh, you know, I, they, apparently there were some very interesting uh, talks up there too. So, you know, um, good stuff all around. And uh, look, there were over 250 people. Sometimes the room was packed. I, it must have been between 250 and 300 people. I mean, I think that's pretty good. Uh, so... That, that, in terms of presentations, was very power-packed. If, if I had to make recommendations, is I, I think I would try and give a break during the lunch hours just so we don't miss anything, because they keep speaking during noon. And they keep speaking sometimes through 6 to 7 to 8 o'clock, you know, so people would get hungry and all that. But you, you, you just had to choose when you go and eat. And, um, yeah, so th th there was that there. Uh, I don't know if you have any questions about it, but no, I, I was very happy with Lancer Capo uh, last year, and I was very happy with Lancer this year. Okay, very good. Right, I just wanted to get a report and uh, to let uh, listeners know. Now, you reminded me to, to ask you about Dave Boylan. 
Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up maybe two more subjects. I'll go quickly into my talk and to uh, chat my, a chat I had with David Boylan. Um, just to let you know, for, for your uh, listeners, of course, Chokeholds has been out now since November 14th. Uh, we're starting to get some preliminary figures on sales. Uh, there's a lot of interest, Len. Uh, people are buying from all around the world, you know, like uh, we're, we're getting stats. Um, it, it, it's, um, we're starting to see some, some nice comments on Amazon. If some of your listeners have read the book and have a, a strong feeling for it, if they can ever go on there and, you know, express something that's heartfelt, I'm not asking anyone to, I'll tell you why I bring that up is I think we're up to about 14 ratings on Amazon and 13 of them are all five on five but one person decided to give us a one on five so we kind of and you know a poor review uh, whereas the other reviews are pretty good uh so you know we we kind of doubt that there might be a little bit of sabotage there so if anybody can go out there and help us uh, uh just write something that's heartfelt if you've read the book and you liked it uh it's so what I did during the conference is I talked about the book and here's where I'm pleased is I, I've done I had done one presentation to a pretty seasoned group of researchers in England then I did one to about 90 different people in Quebec City that are more made up of the general population and I have a feeling that both groups will really get a lot out of it uh, and I'll explain why is you know when we explained the concept of the chokeholds there was a couple of lawyers in the room they felt the idea of you know presenting presenting evidence to a level of standard of proof that provides clear and convincing evidence that there's a conspiracy and that lawyers involved in writing that part, you know, uh, that, that, that that adds a flavor, you know, that was really appreciated. And some people said, it's also great that you focused on the chokeholds and not debatable stuff. So that went along well. Then I, I, I was asking the audience questions. And... You know, like we have a chapter on Oswald being impersonated. We think it's a chokehold. We're convinced it's a chokehold. I mean, why would a 24-year-old, he just turned 24 when he was assassinated in October. Uh, so, you know, he survived one month after his 24th birthday. And he, the person, Matt Crumpton, who wrote that chapter, identified at least 20 instances where Oswald's, Oswald was imitated. Impersonated. 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 Yeah. yeah, impersonated. That's a better word. So what kind of 23-year-old loner, a high school dropout, gets impersonated? Whether it be in Mexico City, at a shooting range, uh, you know, while he's in Russia, you know, it's well documented. And if you don't accept that he's impersonated, then you, you, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, then who was he with? He was with escorts. He's not alone, not. And people were astounded by the number of times. Like they had heard about it, but for it to have been chronicled like that. The other thing that 
that is important too is if, if I had to make one change to uh, the book, Lynn, I, I change one of the titles. I call it the prior plots article uh, chapter. Uh, it's more of a, of a similar case chapter. Initially, it was prior plots because when I first wrote about it, the, the only cases I talked about were prior plots. But since I wrote that article some seven or eight years ago, minimum, we've identified other cases that would be so suspicious and we're up to 10 or 12 cases. And when they saw the fingerprints of potential patsies and the number who would have been associated with the Fair Play for Cuba committee, for instance, I think that they, they came out saying, oh boy, here's a pattern I hadn't seen before. or I didn't realize it went that far. Uh, the chapter we have on 60 years of obstruction of justice a lot of people associate the obstruction of justice with the Warren Commission, uh, Joe Anides and the House Select Committee on Assassination is well known. But what was done during the Rockefeller Commission and what was done during the ARRB and other investigations are, I mean, it's equally astounding. So all that, I think uh, I had 45 minutes well, actually, 15 minutes to go through about 60 slides. I didn't go through every slide. I, can we just you, had, sorry, can you give me one example of something in the Rockefeller Commission? Because that's not too well known that might intrigue people to buy your book. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the Rockefeller Commission, begin with the makeup. So who, who launches the Rockefeller Commission? Gerald Ford. Who was Gerald Ford? He was a commissioner during the Warren Commission. And he was considered the FBI's snitch. He's the guy who lied about the whole, uh, you know, the wound in Kennedy's back near being at the base of the neck. Um, and anyway, who does he put in charge of that commission? One of the key lawyers on the Warren Commission, David Bellum. Then, um, look, when it came time to pre uh, Bellum at one point did want to hold a press conference to kind of say, here's where we're landed at, you know, here, here let, let us update you to, you know, one little show of transparency. Well, Kissinger came in and said, you're not holding that press conference. And then when it came time to uh, Len write the report, it was sanitized. You know who sanitized it? <laughs> Guess who? <laughs> they brought in Dick Cheney to sanitize the uh, report. In other words, proofread it and determine. So Ford had a huge say on what would be finally written about that. Thank God it didn't go very far because it was superseded by the church committee. Uh, but that's, that's just one. Uh, the church committee itself was under an awful lot of pressure. Um, I think the ARB, it's absolute. I mean, the worst, I think, was, were, of course, the Garrison investigation. When you think that the CIA created a group called the Garrison Group, right, and that you would bug his office and that you'd get the attorney general, you know, uh, Ramsey Clark of the U.S., kibitzing on a Louisiana case, I mean, Ramsey Clark kibitzing, you know, saying, oh, we looked into Clay Shaw and we found nothing there. Uh, but except he put his finger in his mouth there, his foot in his mouth there, because uh, the reporters, some of them say, well, why did you feel you had to look into this guy? 
And then, uh, you know, the word came out that he misspoke. But, I mean, uh, then uh, if you go to the ARB, uh, Len, I mean, the ONI, there was a lady that was the liaison between the ONI and the ARB. She'd been doing a great job. The ARB was really happy with her. Her name was Terry Pike. Well, when the ONI, you know, uh, all of a sudden freaked out and said, hey, we're going too far, they railroaded this lady, lady and uh, she lost her job and, and uh, you know, she was her career went downhill because of that. Uh, same sort of thing happened with the um, Secret Service. You know, all these prior plots to assassinate and threats, we know a hell of a lot more about them if the Secret Service didn't illegally go into shredder mode. Because in 1993, I think it's 1993, in around that date, they started shredding all their documents on Kennedy's travels in 1963, the year he was murdered. And had they not done that, we, we could know a little bit more about the, the uh, you know, the people. Some people were arrested. Some people were picked up. Some people were questioned. Well, where are their files? We don't know where they are. And the ARB uh, pointed it out in their in their report saying, hey, look, the Secret Service, um, you know, obfuscated and uh, tampered with the job we were supposed to do. So those are our examples. I think that particular chapter, Len, out of 440 pages, 60 years of obstruction of justice, it takes out takes up at least 70. And it goes all the way to, uh, what, what do you call it when Trump and Biden refuse to declassify the files? Is that not obstruction of justice? Exactly, and and Trump will say his hands were tied, that he wanted to. Yeah, so I think that's an incredible chapter. Um, and, you know, so we have 10 such chapters. The uh, And the, the uh, you know, I think what we'll be able to get out of this is the handbook, the ultimate handbook that says, look, not, not that we needed to do it, but if you wanted to put clarity uh, the way a lawyer would to say, here's why you can't believe the Warren Commission, stop parroting it, you, you, you would have this, but you have in there a heck of a lot of new information because we just went on and on and on and pulled things up all the way till August this year. So uh, we're very pleased with that. Um, now, here's the thing is I going forward, you're not going to find me spending too much time trying to prove there was a conspiracy. You're going to try and, you know, that's why people like Fletcher Prouty are interesting, right? Because Fletcher Prouty to you is much more of a resource who can tell you what the nature of the conspiracy is. I, I don't know if you disagree with that, but I mean, Fletcher Prouty, yeah, he did bring out evidence, like, for instance, all the, uh, <laughs> I mean, look, when he talks about what was published in New Zealand, didn't he say something along the lines, uh, Len, that, well, that could only be special ops? 
that you know well, already. Well, yeah, the, the information was just um, not really out on. It had to be released by somebody that they had kind of a story, a scenario that they were going to go with, and they would, you know, uh, release information on somebody because then the people right away think, okay, they've got the guy, and it takes an awful lot for you to be convinced that oh. They got the wrong guy. It's somebody else, right? I mean, um, you, you hear this all the time with news of, uh, like, I don't know, in Ukraine or something. They're raping little kids or something, and then it was Israel. Oh, they're they're chopping the heads off of babies, right? And then you find out, no, that's not the case. That that didn't happen, you know. And then um, with the case of just. How much information did they have? I think the, the first thing that Fletcher saw was open windows right over top of where the president was going by. And he knew that, well, they would never allow that. Um, under normal circumstances, there would be, you know, 200 men there all along the parade route augmenting the Secret Service. And then, you know, they would uh, be on walkie-talkies looking up. And if, and if somebody does open a window right beforehand, they send someone up there. To investigate and tell them to shut the window or or there's a problem stop the parade you know and you know um he he went on uh with eisenhower i think to mexico city and he, he saw how it was done and he was very impressed so then when you find out that certain people units of protection were told to stand down and then you can start you know it, you know it just it's so many footprints of of the crime that is not just not Lee Oswald alone, you know, Marxist, whatever. Oh, yeah. So, look, that, that brings me to a little bit of my interest going forward. Um, so, uh, when I spoke with Dave Boylan, th this is what's interesting, is if you look at the the writing and the people I've networked with mostly, I'm thinking of Jim and, and, and others, um, I always brought it down to this one, is if you had to look at two um, poles of investigation or two vectors, I always felt there was sort of a garrison vector, uh, and then I always felt there was a Fonzie vector, Gaetan Fonzie, who was an investigator for the House Select Committee in Assassinations and the Church Committee. Um, Garrison's investigations brought him mostly in the, you know, because he was in New Orleans. So, you know, he, he got to whole, know all about Oswald's 1963 summer. We got to know more about the Fair Play for Cuba committee, uh, way more about Guy Bannister, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, some of the Cuban exiles. Then if you read the last investigation, you look into Gaetan Fonzi's work, what do you have? Is you have a, a bird's eye view, I would say, of what went on in Miami. You know, he's someone who really turned lights on people like uh, David Atlee Phillips, who he questioned. And he was able to make the link between Vesiana and David Atlee Phillips. And he, he and Hardway and Lopez caught Goodpasture and, and Phillips lying, lying their heads off about what happened in Mexico City when Oswald allegedly went there. But the whole world, like, you know, you, you know, you wouldn't know about a David Morales who was so secretive. And then, you know, you have William Harvey and all that bunch. That didn't come out of Garrison uh, work. It came out of Fonzie work. 
And, you know, from Garrison, you sort of have disciples uh, or people that pushed his his investigation so much farther in William Davy and Melanson and, and John Mellon and, and, of course, Jim. And then you have uh, people who've pushed Fonzie's work a lot further in uh, Bill Simpich, Newman, uh, Larry Hancock. And I'll add this person who, uh, you know, often works behind the scenes is Dave Boylan. Dave was there with his family, wonderful family. And we we got to chatting and, you know, I said, what links do we have between Miami and New Orleans? Like, where, where are the... Uh, where are the lines of communication there? So, of course, we talked about Joannides. Joannides uh, was the one who was supervising the DRE, and only because of recent releases did we find out uh, that uh, he was actually in New Orleans, even though he worked out of JM Wave in and around the time that Oswald was there. So what does that mean? Is You would have a Joannides who would certainly know a Carlos Bringuer and a lot of people that hobnobbed or came into conflict or, or, or contact with Oswald during the summer of 63. And for sure, Joannides must have known David Atlee Phillips because David Atlee Phillips is credited for founding the DRE by E. Howard Hunt. So then there's a, an amazing area of investigation you know, this is crazy when you think of it, is Oswald goes to a language school and he claims he wants to learn Spanish. And he meets a guy there called, uh, is it Ernesto Rodriguez? Uh, I think it's Ernesto Rodriguez. He meets him there and he chats with him. And Ernesto Rodriguez, and then he says, you know, I'd like to help the Cuban exiles. And, you know, I was in the Marines and I think I could help them. Ernesto Rodriguez, if it's, if it's Ernesto, it's not Emilio, but it's anyway, he says, you should meet Carlos Bringuer. So he goes to meet Carlos Bringuer, and Carlos Bringuer um, gets into a huge fight, with, well, huge fight, sorry, what's likely a staged fight, because eventually he sees that Oswald is handing out fair play for Cuba committee flyers. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, that seems to be more of a theater. You know, it just seems like theater. I mean, one of Bringier's friends, Carlos Coroga, was seen as uh, at Oswald's ap apartment with a stack of Fair Play for Cuba committee flyers. And uh, according to a polygraph test, Carlos Coroga, when he said that the Fair Play for Cuba committee was not a front, for Oswald, he was deemed to be lying according to the polygraph. So anyway, uh, what you see there is, is, is sort of a huge charade. Now, uh, one of the key, key people who links to David Morales and some of the JM Wave people is Emilio Rodriguez. Emilio Rodriguez is CIA all the way. I mean, he was even doing missions in Cuba and uh, he even, I think, had a bank account in New Orleans, okay? Well, Emilio Rodriguez is the brother of Ernesto Rodriguez. And then uh, the father somehow gets involved in that, and uh, Dave showed me a photo of Oswald, or people who were in the court after Oswald's arrest for the fight on Canal Street, and 
is pretty convincing to me that one of the people in the photo is Emilio Rodriguez. So this is the beginning, uh, Len, of what I would call how do you connect Miami and, uh, and New Orleans? Throw in Dallas and Mexico City in there. And if you can, you know, if, if you can now connect the Fonzie body of work with the Garrison body of work and their disciples and all that, I think you'll have a pretty good idea of what went down. Uh, you know, and I think that's the the area that's got my interest an awful lot. Uh, and Dave, Dave was wonderful. You know, we had a great chat, and I, I don't know what's going to come of it, but it certainly, it certainly, I think, is something on the trail of something. Oh yeah, I think there's a big trail there uh, because until you connect Miami. You can throw in Washington, too, of course, because, you know, Angleton's up in Washington and all that. But, you know, we know that Rosselli and William Harvey were often at JM Wave. We also know that William Harvey was quite connected to Mexico City, as was uh, David Atley Phillips. So, you know, you're starting to see. Uh, and by the way, if you look at the people there that, that, that we're identifying, Larry Hancock refers to them as a cater of like-minded people that would work under Alan Dulles and were involved in regime change. So, you know, ZR Rifle, that's a, um, the playbook of William Harvey. Um, and I think what will happen from there is I, uh, you know, you'll see at one point, okay, how does Army Intelligence connect with Jim Wave? You know, and, and that bunch. Because, you know, you, you take Lansdale, right? And you take uh, you take certain people. Like, we know that on Operation Mongoose uh, involved both William Harvey and Lansdale. But Lansdale was more the kingpin in that than, than, than was Harvey. So, you know, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at where Dulles was... By the time the assassination, he had been out of out of the CIA officially, you know, for about a year. But it doesn't mean he wasn't taking orders or wasn't uh, deeply involved with 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 certain people that, that wanted to use his skills. And and if they knew that he still had an awful lot of influence over the people that hated Kennedy, uh, you know, that he used to involve in regime change. Anyway, so it's all that, but. That's, I think, uh, I think that if I look at the uh, conference, not only was it great to promote our book, and not only am I happy with the results of the, uh, you know, the, the reactions to the book so far, and uh, not only was it great to learn, but it was great to network. Often I take, I learn as much, well, now it's three conferences I've been to, is I'll learn a heck of a lot, well, at least as much, in what goes on outside the conference, just by talking to the right people. Okay, very good, very good. So it's all interesting, and uh, maybe more of these people you talked about, we'll have to have them on Black Op Radio. I strongly, you know, and, uh, oh yeah, I think uh, at one point, you'd love to have someone like Dave on, and you certainly... I have to give credit, though, even though I'm the one presenting chokeholds, the work done by the other authors in our group, um, 
it was absolutely amazing. And it, I can't stress how much a guy like Andrew Eiler, you know, we all know Jim, how good he is and, and how good he was with the book. But when you, the people like Matt Crumpton and Andrew Eiler who brought in stuff, I think they made a difference. They made a huge difference. Certainly, I would never have been able to even imagine a book written that way without people like them involved. So I'm very happy with that. And Len, thank you again, too, also for giving us a platform. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, uh, you know, that, that we can have an ally like you or I, I don't want to, you know, someone who's interested and who stays interested and passionate about it. So thanks so much. Okay, very good. All right, well, um, let me see. I kind of feel we should wrap up for now. Is there, was there any other thing you wanted to bring up? Just or I just want to make sure people had an overview of the Lancer Conference. No, I think I think the Lancer Conference. I, I'm just going to say congratulations. Uh, people were really nice, and uh, uh, the organizers were very very good. And um, no, it was. Uh, I have no complaints about it. We had a little at the very beginning some technical problems with sound. Uh, you know, we couldn't quite hear when you were in the back of the room, but that got cleared up after one or two speakers and, you know, so, but, you know, nothing's perfect in these things, but it it went, I would say people got their money's worth for sure. All right. Very good. Um, the book Choke Holds, we've been speaking to Paul Blow from Quebec City. Oh, just, uh, let me... Maybe can I end on this? Uh, you know, uh, for your, uh, if you go to JFK, jfkchokeholds.com, you know, you'll find everything you need to know about if you want to buy the book. And you can follow the link on Facebook. And we're getting more and more people linking up to our Facebook. And we're going to keep you informed about our adventure. We have some nice pictures on our Facebook uh, of the WECT Institute conference as well as uh, Lancer, and we're, we're going to let you know about, que- you know, you may even have a question. We had a few questions come up. If you have some questions you want to direct to the authors, uh, we'll ple- be pleased to answer them. And again, if you've ordered the book and you can give us a nice heartfelt comment, uh, it would be really pleasant. Uh, we we, we kind of have the feeling that something's up, that people, you know, it's a book that you, you know that a book is bothersome when you start getting some of the reactions we're seeing, put it that way. Right. What do you say? The, the flack is uh, always heaviest when you're over the target. <laughs> yeah, you're going to see. The more, you know, an empty can makes a lot of noise. So uh, we're hearing a lot of empty, empty things for now. And I think there's going to be, tr- there's going to be an att- attempt at debunking it. That's fine. You're allowed to, to get, but, you know. We're already seeing uh, weird arguments being put up. But anyway, that's fine. We're okay with that. We're expecting it. And it's part of the playbook. Okay, then good. I'll make a link to that. And um, good. We'll talk to you in the near future. And uh, we'll talk more about the book in the near future. That's great. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Len. Thank you very much. Au revoir. Au revoir.